This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's now 9.35 a.m. and time for the SNM show. This is the show where we rant about what's working and what's not in stocks and markets. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng and our guest this week, Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, independent forex strategist. Well, good morning, Dr. Suresh. Good morning. We heard you earlier um, before the news discussing Bank Nagara's intervention into the ringgit volatility. And uh, as we've seen, the ringgit has been quite volatile this past week. Bank Nagara confirming last Friday that they had, in fact, been intervened in the onshore market to stem the slide in the ringgit by clamping down on trading in NDFs, NDFs being non-deliverable forwards. I understand you wrote your PhD <laughs> on NDFs, Dr. Suresh. Yes, You yes. are just the expert to talk to us on the SNM show. Uh, the, the NDFs are actually, uh, it's an instrument uh, which is settled in US dollar. It's, it's traded offshore itself. Uh, it uh, it came about when uh, currencies were not convertible in the offshore market and there was no local currencies in offshore markets such as in Hong Kong or Singapore. And then these NDF markets were created as a substitute to actually facilitate hedging uh, mechanism for a lot of investors who are based offshore itself. Uh, so um, we get the sense that Bank Nagara was very insecure, uh, if that's the w- correct word that I can use, mm-hmm. about the ringgit falling to about 360, whereas the onshore rates were at the, sorry, not 360, but 460. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the onshore rates were at the 430 level. What explains this discrepancy? Okay, uh, the NDF market, uh, the variables that actually drive that NDF market itself is one is actually the expectations of U.S. interest rates, uh, the expectations of Malaysian interest rates, and the expectation of where the spot currency moves. These are the three variables that actually drive the NDF market itself. Now, if anything of this actually moves uh, extraordinarily, uh, it impacts the value of the NDF itself. In the sense that actually what you mentioned, NDF at 460, uh, it was pricing in the the weakness in the spot market itself. Uh, So naturally, the NDF market actually was pricing that in, while the onshore was actually at 4.30. Now, that huge gap, almost 30 cents, sometimes at 40 cents, uh, is something which is unprecedented. Uh, I've seen it over a course of a couple of years. I've noticed that usually it's uh, roughly 2 or 3 cents or even less than that uh, naturally. 2 or 3 cents compared yeah. to this yeah. 30, 40 cents that we're yes, seeing today. Yes. Okay, yeah. so so you've never seen this happen before? No, I've not seen this before. Do yeah. you? Can you speak to us to why suddenly this has happened? I think uh, if you look at uh, or even read in the major papers, even analysis, the, the broad theme being mentioned is that there's a pullout in emerging markets as well as actually the fact that, you know, U.S. interest rates are going up and Chinese one fixing has been on the weaker side. But I tend to see that it's beyond that itself. Mm. Uh, the key thing here to look into account is the fact that, you know, uh, when the ringgit was actually under pressure right after the elections itself, uh, the the comments and the and the views that were actually being pointed out from authorities really didn't go very well with the with the expectations what the NDF market was pricing in. So that naturally felt that actually they could smell blood. That in the sense that uh, they knew that actually the managing that ringgit volatility was not done in the approach which they had expected itself or the offshore market expected, and that actually gave the NDF market a, a bit of a leeway for them to push the market and. And worse still, when people tend to become very aggressive on the NDF market, when you actually come up with 
very aggressive views of actually trying to ban it or even actually trying to see it as actually a negative, it, it, it gives more food for ammunition oh, actually for the NDF market. So it's like market. a self-fulfilling yes, prophecy. Yeah. The more you talk bad about it, the yeah. worse it becomes. Yeah. But because the turning point was also the victory of Trump in the recent US presidential election. And I, as I understand it, that there was a lot of selling out of the MGS market because foreigners own a huge chunk of Malaysian government securities. And after that, uh, they were reversing all these carry trades and bringing the money back to the United States. Um, that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Because in good times, the foreigners come in and now they're getting out. So would you say, is it fair to say that, um, you know, this is just a, a normal occurrence of what uh, fund flows are and, and that Bank Nagar should not do a lot to meddle around with uh, such decisions? I, I've seen these fund flows way back '94 when I started my career itself. They come in, they go, come in, they go, they come in, they go. So it doesn't make a difference at all. But the key thing here to take into account is actually even after Trump's win, yes, everyone was seeing actually a fund outflow. But the problem in the case like Malaysia is that though as there's a large chunk of foreign bond holdings, now the concern is actually when you convert your ringgit proceeds into dollars and you can't get dollars, that's the problem that actually we are facing. So that's why actually the NDF market tends to price in that risk of, you know, the cost of our, our unavailable dollars in the system that I can't convert it makes it more, more difficult for me to do it. And that's why the NDF market starts pricing in a weaker ring. Okay, so is it fair to say that the NDF and offshore rates are the real rate and the onshore rates are the fake rates? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so because the, the mechanism is totally different. One is the onshore rates are based on transactions that are done Okay, uh, based on underlying uh, instruments of trade that you have. While the offshore market, as much as people think it's speculative, but I tend to look at it as a hedging mechanism for a lot of offshore investors who don't have access to the onshore market. I, I hear you yeah. and I, I yeah. understand your explanation for it. But to me, these are still two rates. And uh, as a citizen of Malaysia making yeah. decisions for the future, which is the rate that's relevant to me? The, you know, when, when prior to the 97, 98 crisis, we only had one rate, uh, which was ringgit, actually, which is, you could, you could actually exchange it for the same value, whether it's in Singapore or even anywhere else. But after the 97 crisis, when we packed the currency for almost seven to eight years, which we should not have done it, we should have done it only for two years, uh, it created a synthetic market uh, for settlement of dollars itself in the offshore market, and the ringgit was never convertible in certain markets at all. When I say convertible, doesn't mean that actually see, you can't get ringgit in money changes. Yes, you can get it in Bangkok, you can get it in Singapore, but it's very difficult for you to get it in London or New York or so on. Prior to the crisis, we could do that. Now, when the ringgit was not fully convertible globally, uh, that gave a creation to the NDF market itself. Now, the, the crux of the issue is there's no ringgit supply on, on, a, on a trade and trade and investment approach offside at all. Uh, it's just that actually you have to go through it actually eh, to the onshore market. So that, that legacy of the capital control that was put in 98 is still in place until today. Are there other currencies that have the same issue with the offshore onshore? No, Thailand had it for a while, uh, right until 2008, and then uh, the Bank of Thailand removed that barrier, and now Thai baht is 
partially convertible in offshore market. Uh, the Singapore dollar doesn't have that. Uh, it's still convertible. Now, the Chinese authorities have, have gone away with it. Uh, they've created actually a CNH market, uh, which is actually convertibility in Hong Kong as well, and even certain markets offshore. Uh, but most emerging market currencies have got a problem of convertibility uh, because their policy making are such. So in that sense, that you have an NDF market, like even Indian rupee, Korean won, Brazilian rial, uh, they have an NDF market. So I, I'm still very fixated uh, on this fake versus real yeah, yeah. Uh, rigid exchange rate, right? And I believe that China's uh, yuan, Chinese yuan or the renminbi is also not fully convertible. And yeah. over there, they have the rate for foreigners. And they have in the past, they had a rate for the locals. And that discrepancy was very big as well. Uh, but if you were in Bank Nagara's position, yeah. I'm just wondering what you would do as a policy because I, um, if I may just narrow it down to yeah. one objective of Bank Nagara, I could be r- totally wrong in yeah. all this in trying to uh, second-guess what Bank Nagara is doing, but I think they are worried of that 460 rate, right? And they don't want the ringgit to go down to 460 and therefore they use all these other methods uh, to keep the rate at 430. Yeah. And you're saying that this is wrong. Yeah. But would you live with... Uh, what would you do as a policymaker? Would you live with a 460? I think in, in times such as this, uh, I can't shut off the NDF market. That's obvious. So now... I have to integrate the NDF market with the onshore market. And I can only do that by providing ringgit convertibility to Malaysian financial institutions operating offshore. So those investors who want to actually get into the market and they want to get into uh, any trades and so on as well, whether it's in MGS and so on, they can actually get back to the onshore, or offshore financial institutions, Malaysian ones, uh, to get the ringgit liquidity. The other solution to this is actually uh, having more of a dual currency investment. Uh, you know, we've got a large 300,000 Malaysians working in Singapore. All we have to do is actually probably provide deposit rates which are higher than onshore rates here to allow them actually to deposit themselves with actually Malaysian financial institutions in Singapore and give them a three months actually period where they can withdraw the money back in Malaysia itself. So it's like, a, you know, you put in here, you get higher interest rates, and then, but you provided that you can only actually withdraw the money in KL. Okay. So it, you're locking in the rates earlier itself. So you get a lot of foreign exchange flows, which builds up some of your buffer against a weaker ringgit. Uh, India did this very successfully about five years ago. So it shored up the rupee itself. Uh, Malaysia could use something like that. The other alternative is providing the ringgit liquidity to Malaysian financial institutions operating in Singapore itself, okay. albeit on a limited basis. Well, let's get you to elaborate a little bit on that because that was a lot of information to absorb yeah. at once. We're speaking to Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, independent forex strategist on the SNM show. We'll be right back after this, BFM 89.9. Good morning, it's now 9.47. You're listening to the SNM show. This is, of course, the show where we rant about what's working and what's not in stocks and markets. Here to join the rant is Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, independent forex strategist. We've got a forex strategist in the house because, of course, the ringgit has seen such volatility in the past month. And um, Bank Nagara has been, in a way, intervening in the onshore market to stem the slide in the ringgit. Dr. Suresh, I understand you have thoughts about what Bank Nagara did in the management of ringgit volatility. Yeah, uh, I think uh, right after the Trump's uh, win on November 10th, uh, 
on November 11th, actually, we saw the market, the ringgit weakened a bit. And I saw the memo that the central bank had put out. Uh, they said, actually, they were looking at the market and getting feedback for the market participants. I think that was very brief itself. And then on Monday, uh, the following week, the ringgit was weaker. And then they were still actually coming out with that type of sort of comments itself. And then it moved uh, one step uh, higher where they were actually – uh, looking at NDF markets specifically and they were a bit annoyed actually in the sense that uh, NDF markets were actually running the onshore market at the opening levels itself. I, w- I was very critical about actually what they had mentioned that you know uh, certain FX traders were looking at the op- uh, starting off the opening price based on what the offshore market is uh, trading. You know it's very simple. I've been in the trading floor for almost 20 over years. Uh, I know how it works. When you open a price at 8 o'clock in the morning, the first thing you do is to gauge how the dollar performance has been overnight. And the NDF market on the dollar ringgit pair, which is traded in London and New York, is the closest indicator to provide that sentiment or the view how the dollar performed. So when you open your price, it has to be something around where it reflected the dollar performance. When, when the central bank says, actually, don't look at the NDF market to see it, to start your opening price, what do you look at to start your opening price? Yeah. So there's I, no I, mechanism for it. I mean, I mean that's, the, that's the yeah. logical thing that yeah. traders do, yeah. right? Uh, so there's no mechanism for it. Until we have a mechanism what to look at, I have to look at where the dollar ringgit NDF started trading right. overnight, you see. So I think it was a bit uh, uh, confusing when the central bank came out and said, actually, certain traders were looking at it that level because – there's no other mechanism to see how the dollar performed and to see it closest towards the ringgit NDF and then start your price from there. And also, I think you pen down some yeah. words as well uh, for the financial publications. And you say that uh, don't – you say, uh, and I quote, don't mention the Federal Market Committee. Is this the FOMC in no, no, any the, of the, the, the Financial Market Committee. Because yeah. the, the Financial Market Committee that was set, up, uh, was set up in the sense that actually it was – it was done beneficial to actually be a linkman between the market as well as the central bank. Okay, so this is not the FOMC. Yeah. This is the local yes. version, financial the, yeah. market committee, yeah. FMC. They yeah. are the liaison to yes, speak between yes. markets and, and policymakers. Yeah. Okay. So why why don't mention them? Because it, at times where during when the market is pressurized, uh, you need to hear things coming out from the central bank directly. And when you actually bring a link man in that actually uh, between uh, go between uh, actually between the, the authorities and the market, the market really actually gets confused. Uh, the financial market committee consists of people in the market, so I need to hear views from the authorities. Oh, you eh? want to hear from the boss, yes. not your colleague. Yes. Okay, so is this is like a kind of circular yeah. argument where yeah. the members of the industry take their cue from Bank Negara and now Bank Negara is taking a cue back from yeah. the industry people yeah. in the committee. Yeah. So this is so, circular thing that's exactly. going on. Exactly. So in times of distress such as this, I rather hear from the horses mall from the central bank rather than hearing it from the financial market committee. So that's why I say the financial market committee should not be mentioned in any format all, uh, they should be in the background, but the central bank's views should be actually right on the top there. Actually, That's the crucial part okay. of it. Well, what, uh, what do you think then uh, about the comments? So if you wanted to hear comments from Bank Nagara, Bank Nagara actually gave some written comments to yeah. the, uh, I think the, the local banks who were trading in um, in NDFs, I think, too. Let me just, let me say, Bank Nagara asked foreign banks to make a written commitment yeah. to refrain from trading the ringgit in offshore non-deliverable forwards in the market. Yeah. The, so they've it, asked for yeah. a signed document. Yeah. You, you see, in the first place, uh, dollar ringgit NDF has been banned in this country. No one can trade dollar ringgit NDF in this country. Local banks or foreign banks are not allowed to trade at all. We all know about it. Everybody knows about it. 
that 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 view and that policy has been there for a long time. But so so the problem is actually <laughs> I don't understand why actually you need to get a written agreement for it. But what I know is actually that you have offshore investors or offshore banks when they need to square positions, they ask the local counterparts, uh, local foreign banks here, to take a position which is reverse or in tandem with what their position is. Because you must bear in mind two things here: you have foreign banks in Malaysia who cannot trade in NDF. Okay, you also have the same foreign bank in offshore who can trade NDF. Okay, now they're the same bank. So one is Malaysian licensed yeah. and the other is not. Yes, mm. exactly. But they're the same bank. Okay, now Malaysian banks operating in Malaysia cannot trade ringgit NDF. Malaysian banks operating in Singapore cannot trade NDF. So literally, actually, the the only factor here you look at it is actually foreign banks. Okay, who have got their counterparts here? The foreign banks offshore okay. they can trade in NDF. So, yeah. so this is what uh, Melissa and I were talking about in our talk sets. That uh, if I want to make a bet on of Melissa <laughs> jumping off the bridge, right? I'm I'm the foreign bank, and I want to make that bet. So Melissa has no uh, means and control of yeah. stopping me, right? Yeah, exactly. Because I, if I believe that she's going to jump off. Uh, I'll, I'll make that bet. He's questioning yeah. my mental no, it's, health. It's, it's very simple. Let's say I'm I'm a, a foreign bank operating in Singapore. Okay, I take a position in the NDF. Okay, now I take a position. All I have to do is actually look at the screen where the fixing of the central bank was. That's all I need to do. That's all, and I just need to make one phone call to my colleague in KL. I've taken a position in NDF. You just take another position which you like. Actually, after all, we're sharing the same books. That's all, and you can be rest assured the local bank, foreign bank, is not trading in NDF. He's just taking a position, just like normal, like anyone else. So you can't stop an NDF. Right. People assume that foreign banks here are trading NDF, but no, they're not. Okay, okay so uh, let's move on from here. You pen down some other words uh, that says convertibility does not mean interna- internationalization. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Okay, we, we, we tend to actually get a bit confused that, you know, once you allow ringgit to be traded offshore, uh, that it means actually internationalizing the currency. Do you know the Singapore dollar is not internationalized? What does what, it what mean? What does that mean, okay. internationalized? Yeah. When, it, when it's internationalized, means actually that the ringgit is, fr- that the currency is freely floating. Uh, in the sense that actually it could be uh, freely floating. It's, it's, it's a function of uh, how markets globally perform. Now, Singapore has a policy of non-internationalization, but they have a policy of convertibility on the capital account. That means if you want Sing dollar to do genuine transactions in the offshore market, the Singapore dollar would be available. So now, this is trade-related yes, trade versus investment speculation. Related. No, no, both sides, if you look at it, whether it's speculate like Australian dollar, you could say it is internationalized. You could also come under speculation. It could also be used for trade investments. See? So it's like an extreme mode of actually where it's freely floating when it's internationalized. When it's actually just partially internationalized, you look at it actually from a point of convertibility for just for trade and investments. So in the sense, what I'm trying to advocate is actually let the ringgit to be convertible to a certain extent to certain markets such as Singapore, to Malaysian financial institutions operating in Singapore itself mm. to provide the ringgit liquidity itself. 
So just partially convertible so that just to ease the pressure onshore on the ringgit itself so that people don't have to go to the NDF market. So, so, so that doesn't mean it's internationalized. <laughs> so, so if I understand you correctly, uh, the problem right now with the offshore versus onshore is that there isn't enough liquidity onshore. and There isn't enough dollar liquidity onshore. There isn't, in, there isn't any liquidity of ringgit offshore. Right. Uh, but, but still, uh, a kind of fair market valuation of the ringgit, yeah. would you think that it still would lead to a 460 kind of valuation for the ringgit? And isn't that what Bank Nagara is trying to prevent? I mean, I, I, they might be preventing it artificially, yeah. it, but that's what they want to achieve, right? So your suggestion to them mm. might not work as well. Yeah. Because if you provide liquidity, the ringgit will still trade to its fair no, valuation. No, not really, not really. Because the, the, the key here is actually because you do NDFs because you can't get the actual currency. That's why the NDF is there in the first place. If you try to kill off the NDF, the one way of actually making it make your own local currency convertible, then the NDF gets it's dead. Now, you have to find out why Thailand successfully killed off its NDF market. 2008, it killed off its NDF. Thailand doesn't have an NDF market. That's, everyone actually looks around a lot of examples. I said Thailand doesn't have an NDF market see? because it has let its Thai banks operating offshore to provide Thai baht liquidity. And has that made the baht more yes, stable? Yes, exactly. It has. No one thinks about Thai baht these days actually, eh? <laughs> Yeah, but it's. Do you know actually, ringgit is a lot more weaker than Thai baht these yeah. days. Yeah. I found it out when I wanted yeah. to plan a trip to Bangkok. Oh, that's yeah. a good note for yeah. the next holiday. Eh? <laughs> so the key here is to look at trying to follow some mechanism, simple rule of thumbs, rather than actually trying to say actually that you know it's a bad market and we don't want to integrate with it. If you get both markets to integrate, then you kill off the NDF market. A good example is the Chinese one. Mm. They have literally killed off the NDF market in Chinese one. They have brought in the CNH market. Volumes have dropped in the NDF market. So the key here is to integrate the onshore and offshore market. Don't create a bigger wedge between both markets. Dr. Suresh, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. You really tried to explain a technical topic and uh, yeah, I think you've succeeded. I think I've got to go back and re-listen to this episode. Yeah, well, I've, I'm, I've got a slight headache. But yes, <laughs> thank you for sharing your insights. Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, yeah. independent forex strategist, who, by the way, did his PhD in NDFs. Uh, you've been listening to The SNM Show. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng. Stay tuned for news coming up next on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.